0: Whether we like it or not, most of our lives revolve around work. Getting ready for work, being at work, taking a holiday from work. Whilst some of us might intrinsically love our jobs, for a growing majority, work is at best a necessity and at worst a drudgery. So what if a machine could do our jobs for us and better? John Danaher, senior lecturer in law at NUI Galway, argues that not only is the automation of work possible, it's also desirable. In his new book, automation and utopia, he makes the case for technological unemployment, which he says will break us out of our work-dominated existence and open us up to new utopian possibilities and heightened forms of human flourishing. You're listening to Technology in Prose. I'm Nikita Agarwal, and this week I'm joined by John to chat about his new book, And Human Flourishing in a World Without Work. John, welcome to Technology in Prose. Oh,
1: thank you for inviting me to participate.
0: So let's begin with a very basic definition. What exactly is work?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a tricky concept to define, and there have been lots of you know, proposed definitions over the years. I guess you could view work in a very expansive way, and a kind of basic physics definition of work is something like, you know, moving an object against a force, So pretty much everything we do involves some kind of work. I'd like to define it or apply it in a more narrow way. So I focus on what I call work in the economic sense, a concept I've taken from some other authors, which means roughly that work is any activity, skill, capacity that you perform or you engage in in return for an economic reward of some sort, uh, or in the hope or expectation of receiving an economic reward. And so we can include, you know, paid work, waged work in that definition, but also some kinds of, you know, entrepreneurial work or unpaid work, which is done in the hope that you'll receive some sort of monetary reward in in the short to medium or long term. So with that definition, I view work as not really an activity per se or any particular set of activities, but rather a condition under which activities are performed.
0: So then what is the case for believing that work as defined um, and as currently carried out, you know, by humans can and will be automated?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, the first part of the book, I distinguish between what I call the possibility thesis and the desirability thesis. So one is whether work it's possible to automate work and the other is whether it's desirable to do so. I mean, I, I should say that my book is probably more about the latter question and the consequences of it than the former question and i don't have anything particularly original to say on the possibility of automation i I tend to just summarize the views of others but you know to briefly kind of put it in into words the case for the possibility of automation is based on historical data or information about the replacement of human workers in different industries so we We see some industries like agriculture and manufacturing most prominently as being areas of fairly significant or rampant replacement by technology, certain kinds of office work and clerical work nowadays. We see, if not a kind of whole scale replacement or displacement of human workers, a very significant reorganization of the workplace in such a way that there's less of a need for a kind of mid-level kind of Uh, clerical workers and so then you look at contemporary technology what's happening in the world of ai and uh, machine learning and whether this is going to lead to the development of technology that's going to replace additional forms of work and so there are a range of estimates out there from different organizations including researchers in in oxford and also you know mckinsey who've produced these large reports on the automatability of the global workplace which um look at how many tasks in the modern workplace are likely to be automated in the next sort of 10 to to 20 years and they come up with estimates saying somewhere between kind of 40 and 50% of work tasks are automatable
0: but do you do you think that there's a limit to that automation you know there are certain tasks that fundamentally a machine cannot replicate
1: yeah i mean i suppose i would say in in principle no and that is based on a, a probably a kind of deep or philosophical assumption that I have, which is just that humans are nothing more than sophisticated machines. So I guess, you know, evolution has produced machines that are capable of performing all the tasks humans perform. So why can't that process be replicated in some sense? I mean in principle it doesn't seem to be impossible to replicate it. You know, in practice, you know, whether we're going to create machines that are capable of doing all workplace related tasks in the next in some sort of reasonable time horizon like you know t- between 10 and 50 years i'm not sure that it's possible that there are some kinds of tasks that are not easily automatable in the in the f- near term future uh, you know classically you've got people like hans moravec arguing that what he calls you know, moravec's paradox which is that high level cognitive skills anything that involves sort of like algorithmic rule following which we used to associate with you know, the pinnacle of human achievement, like playing chess or um, solving mathematical theorems or puzzles like that, these things are actually easily automatable. It's things that we tended to value less, like performing a physical task in a dynamic or changing environment, like walking across a bumpy field. That turns out to be very hard to automate or create a machine that's capable of doing that. Um, but we're getting better at doing those things now, and there's some interesting developments of you know, ro- robots that are capable of acting in sort of dynamic and changing environments. And also, when it comes to kind of mental skills like creativity and problem solving, where there's no sort of defined algorithm that you can follow to solve a problem, we also see some machines that are capable of of those kinds of creative problem solving. So we we're certainly seeing initial inroads into things that we used to think were never capable of being. Automated. how far that will go? i'm not, I'm not sure. I, like I prediction is hard.
0: I wonder what you think of the argument that in that in that world where most things can be automated or done by a machine, um certain things that are currently not considered work would would then become work. So, for example, taking care or anything that involves empathy, um which may be much more difficult for um a machine to replicate might be more highly valued labor in, in, this, in this future that we're thinking of.
1: Yeah, it's possible. Something I've written about many years ago it was probably the first thing I ever wrote on uh, technological unemployment had to do with sex work and uh, technological unemployment. And you know, part of the argument there was that as machines get better at automating certain tasks, where will human workers go like unless there's some alternative to work given the economic necessity of work in modern world people are going to try and look for tasks where there's some human advantage or some preference for human labor so uh, the argument in that paper was that sex work might be one of those areas where there's a preference for human labor so you get like a an increased supply into that industry but you can imagine something similar happening in other kinds of forms of work where there's some preference for a human service provider. Um, So yeah, certain forms of care work are often singled out as being examples of this, but I mean, whether they will become economically viable forms of work is I think a more something that you can question more because often those forms of work are undervalued in society at the moment for kind of deep ideological reasons, structural reasons. It's not clear to me that we are capable of adapting and changing over to a world where these things are, quickly automatable and like if you also consider certain examples of care work like let's say care work in um you know elder care or in uh, medicine or in um healthcare industry there are significant drives already for automation of those forms of work uh, oftentimes because there is an under or a a less of a willingness for humans to work in those areas sometimes seen as kind of um, messy work or unpleasant work or Something that many people aren't willing to train themselves to do. Uh, there may also even be sometimes a preference for machine provided care work. And so uh, a Jennifer Robertson's done studies on this in Japan, which suggests that you know, elderly Japanese people prefer having robot care workers to human care workers. Now, you know, part of the argument that by there might be some sort of deep um, kind of racism or suspicion towards migrant workers, since they are the ones who typically perform those tasks in that culture. That's part of Robertson's theory, in a way, when it comes to it. Um, but it may it may also be that like we, we are embarrassed or we don't want humans to care for us in certain respects. And so it's more convenient and more desirable to have a, a machine care worker, even if the type of care that they provide isn't particularly good or isn't as good as what you would get from a, a human being.
0: Okay, so let's let's talk then a bit about the desirability thesis. So, if we say um, that all work um, workers can and will be replaced by machines, why is this a state of the world that we should want?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, like before, I answer that question. Maybe I should just say one thing about the kind of possibility thesis and uh, um, what I mean by it in, in the book. Uh, I because we we might come back to this, but uh, like I don't. It should be implicit in the comments that I've made so far that I don't think that all Work is going to be eliminated per se. So, and you know, when I when I talk about a future of kind of rampant automation or technological unemployment, what does that mean? To me, it probably means something like you know less than thirty percent of the human po- adult population works. Uh, but that could still mean that there's lots of people working in the sense of receiving some sort of economic reward for their their work. It's just that the what we would call in like Marxist terms the surplus population, the number of people that are not necessary for capitalistic production are has massively increased. So that's just one point I wanted to make. Um, so it's not that zero people work, it's just that a significant percentage of people don't work. In terms of like why this might be a desirable thing. So in, in the book, I distinguish between a, a couple of different ways that you can argue that work is a bad thing. So like the main argument I make is, is that work is a bad thing and that the alternatives to work are better. And so there's reason to welcome automation. Now, how, how can you make that argument? Well, you could focus on particular forms of work and say that they're unpleasant and that the workers who participate in them aren't particularly happy or fulfilled by their jobs. And so that provides some reason to think that work is uh, the, the automation of work is desirable. The problem with that kind of argument is that it focuses on particular forms of work and you, you have to make that case on a case-by-case basis by looking at each individual job or individual task. And it's likely, and this is something we might talk about as well, it's likely that you know we're going to find other types of job or other types of task for people. So there's things that they could do which could, would also be economically rewarded that could be less pleasant. So that, that doesn't seem like a way of making a general case against work. You could also argue that all forms of work are kind of necessarily bad, just intrinsically bad. But again, that, that seems like a tough sell because there are at least some people who find their jobs quite fulfilling and uh, are happy as a result of them and, and so don't experience their work in that way. And so what I try to do is make an intermediate case, which is essentially that work is, is structurally bad. So like the, the way in which work is determined and rewarded in the modern world is bad for many people and getting worse for many people as a result of technological change. And so those of us who are fortunate enough to have jobs that are, we find fulfilling and rewarding are usually the ones who have just gotten lucky within this overarching structure. And there's no guarantee that we will continue to remain lucky in the future. So there's reasons for those of us who, who enjoy work to also be worried about the future of work and to prefer or consider at least the desirability of non-work.
0: And so why can't we just improve the conditions of work? And, you know, we're talking not long after the Supreme Court's decision in in the Uber case, which hopefully would improve the lot of um, gig economy workers. Is that not the kind of change that would just make these jobs better?
1: Yeah. And I think like you can reform the conditions of work to some extent, and that might uh, be beneficial in the again, the kind of short to medium term. So improving the conditions of gig workers, uh, giving them access to labor rights or entitlements that they have previously been denied or excluded from, that might be beneficial in the in the short term for them. But again, if you look at the history of like attempts to improve the conditions of workers in other industries, manufacturing industries, they, those worked for a period of time until there, there was almost a you know, complete automation of those forms of work, or there was a competition for outsourced workers so there's an issue in, in the modern world whereby um, unless you have some kind of as long as we have a globalized economy unless you have some kind of global solution to these problems or global reform of the conditions of work it's likely that the owners of the means of production will move or outsource production to regions where um, they they can access kind of cheaper labor or they can access machine labor which kicks up less of a fuss than than human workers. So no, it, like, it's, it's this isn't to say that we shouldn't try to reform these things, but whether that is a sustainable solution in the long term is questionable. And, and so that leads to the issue of whether we want to pursue a more radical alternative.
0: Um, is this a sort of privileged position or a privileged argument to say that, you know, work that is more manual and not intellectually stimulating in some way is, is um, just not satisfying?
1: Yeah, I mean, so it, it's it's not the case that that manual forms of work are intrinsically less fulfilling or bad or, or something like that. Uh, it what, what the, the argument that I make in the book is more that those forms of work are t- tend to... The conditions of work that attach to them tend to be worse than the conditions of work that attach to, you know, high-level creative work or um, managerial work. Uh, so... Again, like the, I guess the gig economy is a is a good I- illustration of this that um, a lot of you know, let's say delivery related tasks or transport is being kind of administered or, or provided to the market on this gig basis, which usually results in much less positive working conditions for the the people involved, excepting the um, recent attempts to to reform or change these things. There's usually a lot more competition. These workers are responsible, to a large extent, for their own uh, management, their own insurance, their own care, and um, these things are kind of increasing the burdens associated with work for this class of of workers. And there's a more contingency to their work as well. There's no, there's less of a guarantee of income or reward associated with them. So these are things. The conditions under which they're working are getting worse. So it's not that the the work itself is intrinsically bad. I mean, it, it, and it could be fulfilling for many people. It's rather that the the context in which that work gets done is what makes it bad. So that's just one one point to make about that. And the other point is that um, you know there are like a lot of, kind of surveys of workplace fulfillment and, and happiness, which suggest that. Um, Many people don't find their work particularly fulfilling. I cite these examples in the book of the Gallup State of the Global Workforce Surveys, where they have this kind of 13-item questionnaire, which tries to develop a general measure of how engaged and fulfilled people are in their work. And the figures from those surveys have been remarkably low for quite a long period of time, where I think in the European Union, when I last checked the average was about only 10% of people found themselves actively engaged by the work that they do. And even in like North America or US, which has a famously work oriented culture, you have talking about maybe 30% of people find themselves actively engaged by the work that they do. And I suppose like what I would do, what I would say is to kind of turn around the question on you is that it's often the privileged people who find themselves rewarded by work and find what the work that they do fulfilling a lot of other people don't find it particularly filling. They find it a necessary means to an end, and they find meaning and fulfillment outside of work. So like this is something that I also criticize some philosophers for in the book, that there's all these theories about meaningful work and the the goods associated with work, that work is a way in which people can achieve mastery over a certain skill set, that they can contribute to their communities, that they can find a sense of of self-respect and status in society. And like what I would say in response to that is twofold. One is that that's probably not true for many people is that work is not the main way in which they access these goods, but also that if, to the extent that it is true, it's largely because people aren't given an alternative to work, that they have to, they have to find mastery in work. They have to find community in work because they spend all their time preparing for work, commuting to work, performing work. Recovering from work, so work just occupies this sort of central is, or is the central forum in their life, and so they have to find whatever good things they want from life in work, and that could be a bad thing if non-work alternatives are better.
0: So, so let's talk a bit about the that alternative to work, um, that post-work future. And I think in the book, you know, you devote a lot of space to. Um, consciously building um, a desirable work, post-work future. You outlined two possible visions um, for post-work utopia, indeed, um, the cyborg utopia and the virtual utopia. Um, why don't we talk a bit about first the cyborg utopia? You know, What is it um, and what are the arguments for and against building a cyborg utopia?
1: Yeah, I mean, before I answer that question, would you mind if I just kind of briefly explained why I arrive at those two like, why did I pick those two things as opposed to anything else?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, within the book, I have this um, kind of dichotomy or uh, divergence in in the possible forms of the human future that I outline roughly at the at the midpoint of the book. And so, the the basic thesis is that if you take on board certain theories in kind of evolutionary anthropology there's this idea that humans evolved to fill a cognitive niche. And so that what makes us distinctive and what enables humans to survive and thrive is that they were able to use their brains, both individually and collectively, to solve problems and to build technologies to construct an an environment or set of environments that were more amenable to human flourishing, okay? So we've constructed our own niche in society through our minds, through our cognition. And so one of the interesting things about automation is the extent to which we are now building technologies that replace our cognition. And so that threatened to kind of push us out of this cognitive niche, that this was the thing that used to make us distinctive and important, but now we're creating a technology that may supersede us in this respect, or at least in some respects. And so what I argue is that we face this choice now. As a result, is you know, do we cede more control to the machines, more of the cognitive niche to the machines, or do we in some sense try to fight back or race against the machines and become more like them? So to to the extent that they are threatening to replace us, we try to transform ourselves into uh, the the technology that is threatening to replace us. And now, I mean, that's a very kind of binary vision of the future, and some people would argue it's a, a false dichotomy. It's not necessarily either or, or, and I'm sympathetic to that idea. It's just more, this is a kind of metaphor framing device for thinking about the different possible, or the different choices that we, we face in the future. And so the, the two utopias that I name in the book, the cyborg utopia and the virtual utopia, they roughly correspond to those different choices we could make. So the cyborg utopia is fighting back against the machines, trying to turn ourselves into them, And the virtual utopia is roughly ceding more control to machines or more of the cognitive territory to machines and trying to find some other kind of um, attribute or set of attributes that is distinctive or unique to human flourishing.
0: So the idea of cyborgization of humans, enhancing themselves with technology, seems appealing. Um, what then are the arguments against that future, um, against that cyborg utopia?
1: I think there are, are a few things that would be problematic about a cyborg utopia. I mean, one of them that I would be particularly concerned about is what would the the practical effects be, at least when it comes to work. So, so one fear I would have is so if if the goal is to turn us into machines or become more machine-like as a way of maintaining our relevance, there's a danger that that will maybe double down on some of the worst features of work in the modern world. Um, So one example of this is, one feature of work nowadays is that there's increasing competition for educational credentials, let's say, that you you need to be more and more educated. It's not enough just to have an undergraduate degree, you need to have a master's degree, you need to have PhD degree, you need to have other kinds of educational credentials to succeed in the workplace. Um, And so humans are spending more and more of their time investing in their own training and their own upskilling in order to make themselves economically viable. Well, So we do that now through this educational infrastructure, but if we have cyborg technologies available to us, one of the concerns is that we'll use them as a way to maintain our economic relevance and viability. Um, and all, like often the the areas of, kind of cyborgization, which are probably most likely in the short to medium term to generate advantages for human beings are probably in the area of physical and manual labor. So things like you know cyborg exoskeletons or something like that to enable people to lift heavier boxes or to manipulate objects uh, through kind of complex environments in a faster and more efficient way. So it could be that that's where the the investment goes. We get a doubling down on um, people being kind of driven into those forms of work, which may continue not to be as kind of well-rewarded or to be subject to the same worrisome or troubling economic conditions that I discuss in one of the earlier chapters of the book. So, that, so that's one fear about it is that it could double down on the worst aspects of the competitiveness of, of work nowadays. And so it may not be a route to an alternative post-work future at all, but kind of a, a technological work dystopia. So that's that's one fear about it. Uh, another fear, which is kind of comes at it from a different direction is that you know, some of the hopes or aspirations about cyborg technology seem quite you know fanciful or or far flung the idea that we can you know merge our minds with machines that we could you know digitally upload our consciousness or something like that that seems unlikely in in any kind of reasonable time horizon there seem to be some fairly hard engineering limits when it comes to brain computer interfaces so the likelihood is that this is a very long-term solution to the threat of machines so we're not going to be able to kind of keep pace with the machine based technology that is replacing us. So th- this isn't a reason to abandon or ignore the idea of cyber organization, but it's one reason to think that maybe it's not something that is viable in the again, within a reasonable time horizon. Um, th- there's one other argument that I'd make about it, and this is again kind of a more of a fanciful or far- flung concern about cyber organization. Which is that if the idea of cyborg, of the cyborg utopia or cyborg technology is that we can ultimately replace every human biological part with a machine equivalent, functional equivalent from a machine, what does that do to the human condition? So there's a section in the book that I call The Unvariable Lightness of Being a Cyborg, where I discuss, you know, like, what does this do to kind of human morality and human social interactions? An awful lot of our current you know, moral beliefs and practices hinge upon our biological fragility or vulnerability. So a lot of our belief about what we have an ethical duty to do to other people in terms of avoiding, let's say, a harm, respecting their bodily integrity, it hinges upon the fact that we are fragile biological beings. But if we become these slightly more robust technological beings where every part of us can be replaced by a machine equivalent, can be swapped in and out as you see fit, does that kind of erode or corrode away all of those moral practices and moral norms? And what does that do to the the human condition or what it means to be human? Is, is it kind of a radically alternative way of existence that we can't even really fully conceive of it? So when you ask whether it's a utopian form of existence, you'd have to respond by saying, we don't know, because it's just so different from the way in which we currently exist, we can't even evaluate it.
0: So so then what would a virtual utopia look like? Um, and how would this overcome some of the disadvantages of the cyborg utopia?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I guess we, we didn't talk about um, what a utopia is, which is another feature of, of the book. It's kind of a chapter discussing what what a utopia is, I mean, like without going into the intricacies of it, and this links to some of the arguments that I, against, I have against the cyborg utopia too, uh, to me, a utopia is not a particular model or blueprint for what society should be. So that, that's a, a classical idea of what a utopia is. And if you read utopian fiction, it often involves writers you know, mapping out a model of society with very kind of rigidly defined social roles or uses of technology and that this is supposed to be conducive to human flourishing you know the classic entry in this genre is of course thomas more's utopia which coined the term so uh, the alternative to that is a, is a model of utopianism that i call kind of horizontal utopianism where the goal is not to build a particular blueprint or model of the ideal society but rather to keep society as kind of dynamic and open as possible um, rather than kind of foreclosing all possibilities in in the future. So the the idea is that what we want to achieve is always on the horizon, one step away. It's a quote from Oscar Wilde that uh, develops this idea that um, as soon as we arrive at what we think is utopia, we're, we're setting sail for the next horizon. Okay, so that's just in the background here. Because the reason I sketch that is just it's it's sort of important to the idea of the the virtual utopia, which is the the last chapter of the book. So, the virtual utopia is, uh, I think, conceptually tricky, and this is probably one aspect of the book that people who've read it have struggled with the most, because there there are two conceptions of what a virtual world or a virtual existence means that I contrast in the book. And I've I've come up with an alternative way of contrasting it since I wrote the book, but I, I won't um, go into that in, in too much detail because it's still basically the same as what I wrote. But there's a kind of a technological vision of virtual reality, which is, you know, virtual reality, a virtual life is one where you live inside some sort of computer simulation. You don a virtual reality headset or suit and you immerse yourself in a computer simulation. And that's the vision of a virtual life that I think most people adopt nowadays. It's the one that is most resonant in popular culture. I contrast that with an alternative view of virtual reality, which is this notion that a virtual existence is one that is freed from many of the constraints or necessities of life in the natural world. So what what does that mean? Um, So like one, one argument here is that if you go back to this idea of the cognitive niche, that humans have used their ingenuity and their intelligence to build environments that are more amenable to us, you could argue that we have always been a virtual species insofar as we use technology to create environments that are freed from many of the constraints and necessities of the natural world so the are again to make this more concrete we're we're talking to each other right now we're both sitting in you know well insulated houses we're, we use maybe artificial light to see um we're sheltered from the elements of the world around us so we've we've used technology to build this environment that is Segregated off from the necessities or realities of the physical world. And so we do that with physical, material culture, material technology, but we also do it with what we might call social or cognitive technology. So that an awful lot of what we care about in life is not stuff that is present in the real world, not a feature of the physical world, it's stuff that we imagine exists on top of the physical world. Uh, and some of these things take on a huge importance in human social life. So certain social statuses like being an aristocrat, a king or a queen or, um, you know, uh, being married, let's say, or having a certain kind of relationship status. These are social constructs that we apply to people. They're not things that are intrinsic to the physical relationships between people. And yet they are hugely important. So there's this kind of like imagined layer on top of physical reality. That um is sort of central to human life, so there there are some people who take this this idea you know to rather extreme lengths so there's a guy called Yuval Noah Harari, who people probably heard of. He's been quite popular in the past decade or so and so like he has this notion that human civilization is just one large virtual reality game where we've created material culture and kind of symbolic mythical culture to uh, create these games that we're all playing all the time. And no, none of the games that we're playing are intrinsic to the physical world and social statuses and hierarchies are not intrinsic to the physical world. They're just a, a bit of cultural imagination. And so his argument is, you know, that people who who worry about the future being everyone kind of retreating into virtual reality, playing computer games, he said, well, you know, we're already doing that. We're just not using this particular mode of technology to do it, but that's what human social life is to a large extent is playing all these different games. So he argues this was controversially that a lot of religious beliefs are in a sense, virtual reality games. And then also that, you know, consumerist capitalism is in a sense a virtual reality game as well. So like what I want to do is going to take Harari's thesis and modify it slightly to argue for a, a kind of virtual utopia. So I think he, he pushes this, idea that we are a virtual species and we've always been playing virtual reality games uh, slightly too far but I think there is something true to it and there's something that I want to defend in it as well.
0: I mean taking that a bit further then um, what exactly are we um, looking to construct beyond just the sort of basic construction of reality that is our that is already our existence so what do we need to do to make this post-work future you know an ideal society or a kind of better society that we can live in?
1: there there are two things in particular that i think we need to do so at the moment we are we are i guess playing an economic game or uh, that's one of the central features of our life is that we we have to work in order to gain access to an income to survive and this is kind of crucial to to the way in which we live now so what i would be hoping is that through the use of automating technologies we can remove that contingency from our life so that conditionality that attaches to our tasks and activities. We don't need to work in order to access other kinds of you know, physical and material goods in, in particular, like food and shelter and so forth. Um, but that, you know, we have to find some alternative set of activities for us to engage in. Um, and what I argue for in the book is a kind of a, a utopia of games, adopting this uh, idea from the philosopher Bernard Suits, who has this you know, de- definition of a game, which is whereby a game is the, you know, the short definition is is the, the voluntary triumph over kind of arbitrarily imposed obstacles. So, uh, so a game is something where you have an, a goal or a, an activity that you're supposed to perform in order to gain a particular result, like win a game or score a goal or whatever it might be. That's defined in advance. And then you set up these kind of arbitrary obstacles to make it harder for you to do it, to, to achieve that goal. Uh, so, you know, if you're playing something like um golf, let's say as a game, I think that's one of the examples I, I use in the book. It, so the, the goal of golf is to put a ball in a hole ultimately. That's what the the end result is. And you know the most efficient or effective way of doing that, if we're honest about it, is probably gonna be just to to pick up the ball in your hand and carry it down the, the fairway and drop it in, in the hole. But we don't do that. We we oppose a certain set of obstacles to say, well, no, you're, you're not allowed to pick it up. You have to hit it with a, a stick, and um, you know you you have to hit it in a certain way and in a certain direction, uh, and we you know we create these kind of different levels of uh, obstacle in the way, like you have sand traps and water hazards and rough and so forth. So this is an example that make more sense to people who are more familiar with golf, but that's just uh, one illustration of that we've imposed all these arbitrary obstacles to prevent us from achieving the goal in an efficient way. And this is part of what makes games interesting and fun is because is that we have to use our creativity, our intelligence to overcome these obstacles. And, you know, potentially there's an infinite number of, of games that we can play and perform, and we can find them rewarding and exciting in different different ways. And so the idea in, in the book is that we should use the opportunities afforded to us by automated technologies to eliminate the kind of economic game from our lives and to play alternative games that don't have this sort of economic contingency attached to them. And that is different in one sense from Harari's view of virtual reality as being already kind of imminent in human life and the main difference is that when you're playing a game you usually know that you're playing a game you know that what you're doing is trying to achieve some sort of arbitrarily defined goal and triumphing over arbitrarily defined obstacles whereas many of harari's examples like again consumer capitalism or religion the people who are playing those games quote unquote are not conscious of the fact that they are games. They think they're very serious and very real. And so that's the other kind of thing I would be keen on identifying or adding to our this, this virtual utopia that I imagine is that a knowledge or awareness that what we're doing is, in some sense, a game, that it's not just a, it's not a necessity of human life. And then i I develop a kind of argument or case for thinking that this would be conducive to a kind of of human flourishing,
0: ok. so So we want to kind of construct virtual worlds. These will be like simulated games in which we sort of replicate some of the sources of fulfillment and meaning in the current world, but not tied to economic gain. So there will be sources of mastery and achievement. and, So on. Is that kind of the vision that you're putting out?
1: Yeah. So the the games themselves then would become an arena in which you can, you know, develop a sense of of mastery over a skill set. You can engage with a community of peers. You can uh, achieve some kind of social status and respect. Uh, You can also maybe build certain moral virtues and moral skills. So like this is an idea that's longstanding in the philosophy of sport, that certain sports are, Training grounds for moral virtues. That you you learn virtues of honor and honesty and things like this in in playing games. Now, like what, what many philosophers would support argue is that they are you know moral laboratories where you you develop these skills and then you take them out into the real world where you then kind of hone them further or put them to good use. But I guess my idea is that the virtues are just constrained within the game. It's there's kind of an internal virtue to to playing the game, and um, that is in itself enough. You don't need to kind of transfer it to other parts of life. And like, without going into the philosophical intricacies of it, that, like that's an idea as well that has a kind of a longstanding uh, tr- history in, in philosophy. So there's a guy called Alistair McIntyre wrote a famous book about virtue ethics, who kind of argues for a view like this, or at least some of what he says can support this view that. Activities themselves have their own internal virtues. And in a sense, you can't actually understand what it means to be a virtuous human apart from any particular activity. So I'm, I'm making a similar argument about games, that games have their own internal virtues. And if, if you care about being a moral or a virtuous being, you have to develop virtues relative to those
0: games. So, so games are, the games and gamification is quite critical. We can't just like take psychedelics and um, reach a higher consciousness that way.
1: Uh, so, I mean... One thing I would say is that it, within that chapter on on the utopia of games, I, I don't want to say that games are everything that we will end up doing. I just want to say that they are a, one potential kind of major component of what we could do as an alternative to work. But, you know, it's still the case that we will find other outlets or avenues for meaning and flourishing. I'm, su- I'm sure we will continue to have, you know, families and friends and other relationships that are separate from the game world and they, they will be a source of great meaning to people. You know, and taking psychedelics or engaging in certain kinds of meditative practice, they could also be very rewarding and fulfilling in, in, in this future too. And we might have more time for them and less concerns about the implications of it if it's not something that's going to affect our kind of economic productivity if we don't have to, to worry about that so much. So it's not that I would rule those things out, but... Um, I'm just focusing on what kind of replaces work in this future.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering what's the sort of political, well, the economic reality of this this future. You know, the games that we have or play currently are owned by... You know, big corporations, and they are running it with economic incentives in mind. Um, do we really want to subject ourselves to kind of their whim? And uh, I mean, whether it's Microsoft or Google or whatever it is, um, is that that doesn't seem ideal either. That like our attention is being manipulated and commodified. Um, that seems to go against the kind of uh, the vision that that we want to pursue.
1: Yeah, but so w- probably two things about that. W- one is that there definitely are problems when it comes to let's say the ownership of whatever infrastructure it is that we use to create this utopia of games. And you don't want that to be centralized in the control of certain people who might act for interests that are contrary to our own or act for purposes that are contrary to our, our flourishing. So the, the big problem of the current world is how the concentration of ownership over the digital sphere, technosphere is is so limited. and is constrained by people with certain vision of, of what uh, that technology should should be used for. The other point that I would make, and this is something that people might pass over if they, they read the book, is that my vision of this kind of utopia of games is, as I say, technologically agnostic. So, so this is not a future in which we are inside, let's say, a computer simulation or playing computer games. We can create games in... In the physical world we as we have done for centuries uh, they don't have to be technologically mediated games per se they, they, they don't have to rely upon the internet or you don't have to have a i don't know like an oculus to play these games you know it's uh, there are old um alternatives sort of non computer-based visions of, of what the, this future would would consist of but i mean to the extent that it is going to rely on these existent technologies then it is a, a problem if the ownership and control over those technologies is limited to relatively few people. I mean, I just want to make one other point about that because this is linked to something around the debate about automation as well. So, you know, w- what we haven't spoken about here and it's not a major feature of, of the work I've done is if, if nobody's working anymore, they don't have, they don't have any income. So like, where, do, where does the income come from? And So there's various proposals out there for having a basic income guarantee how do you fund the basic income guarantee? Uh, do you fund it through taxation on the people who own the technology that is doing all the production? So maybe you do, but does does that not mean that in some sense all the people who are not working are dependent upon the capitalists who own the technological means of means of production for their survival? So they are, are they not a, in a sense a kind of like dominated class of people a, as a result? And so I think that it, that is a problem with some you know, basic income. Proposals is that the the net effect might be that the control over society is limited to a small number of corporations or individuals who own the technological means of production, uh, and so we, that you would also need to address that problem there. That you would need to have some kind of general ownership and control over the the uh, means of production, or some say or right for individual citizens to. have um, have some control over that if you want to remove that kind of dependency relationship. So that's a concern about the basic income guarantee, but it's also potentially a concern about the utopia of games too.
0: There's so much more to talk about, but I'm afraid we have to end there. Uh, So thank you, John, so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed the book. And as always, great chatting to you. Yeah, thank you. That was John Danaher, author of Automation and Utopia, Human Flourishing in a World Without Work. And that's it for me, at least for now. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting the show over the last few months. I hope you've enjoyed the conversations. I certainly have. And if there's one thing I'm more sure of now, it's that technology and its impact on society is what we make it. We can design systems that democratise, that empower and unite us. Or we can build systems that repress, marginalise and divide us. Governments and the tech companies that are the forefront of innovation have a great responsibility to exercise their powers prudently. And as members of civil society, we have a great duty to hold them accountable for the proper exercise of those powers. So thank you again for coming on this journey. I'd love to connect with you, so please leave a review or get in touch with your thoughts, questions, requests for future episodes, or if you just want to chat. I'm on Twitter, at Nikita Agarwal, and the show is at Technology Pros. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and I'll be in touch soon, hopefully from a post-pandemic future.